Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile AF the Podcast. This is our season four premiere, episode 151 called Amanda Knox. Hello, everybody. This is Allie and Blair, the co-founders of Fertility Rally, and we are here to tell you a little bit about who we are, what we do, and how we can support you on your infertility journey. So we wanted to let you know that Fertility Rally is the membership group that we created. It's the place we wish we had when we were in the thick of it. We offer support groups. We have private Facebook groups. We have tons of events, lots of videos, blog posts, so much content. We're starting to do IRL events as well. And we want to be there for you no matter where you are on your journey. Yeah, our favorite part, we had no idea where this would go when we started it. And our favorite part about it is watching all of our members, which is like 300 plus at this point, connect and create true lifelong friendships. We have members that are meeting up in real life. We have members that are supporting each other on Instagram. We have members that call each other their best friends now. And honestly, like that is the most rewarding thing to see. We had no idea it would go here. And so we're just... We're inviting you to join the Rally Fam. Yeah, it's such a great space. It's a safe space. We also have fun when we can. So we would love for you to be a part of it. Check us out on fertilityrally.com and on Instagram at Fertility Rally. Hope to see you guys soon. Today's episode is sponsored by MyVitro. At MyVitro, they know that receiving that big box of fertility meds can be really overwhelming. They offer organizers and accessories to help make fertility treatments a little bit easier. MyVitro was founded in 2020 by two infertility warriors, Danielle and Patrick, who want to help people like them who might be struggling to organize their expensive IVF supplies. Since launching in 2020, MyVitro has helped thousands of people feel confident during treatment. Their products like the Fertility Caddy, the Fridge Box, the Injection Trainer, and the TTC Bandages are a total game changer. Take it from this happy customer who had to say... The Fertility Caddy is the perfect size to keep my medication, syringes, alcohol wipes, and any extra equipment I need. It keeps me organized and that helps me stay sane on this wild journey. My Vitro has everything you need to get your meds stored safely and organized so you feel confident and in control of your IVF cycle. And of course, I have a special code for all of the Infertile AF listeners. Use code InfertileAF at MyVitro.com to get 10% off My Vitro products. This episode is sponsored by Noelle. We all do so much in the name of wellness, but if you're not addressing your hormone health, you're missing the mark. Noelle is here to help. Fertility, PMS symptoms, cycle regulation, mood, metabolism, skin and hair health are all dictated by hormone balance. And Noelle's daily supplement provides the nutrition support you need to feel your best. Noelle's formula includes the best of East meets West with adaptogens, botanicals, probiotics, vitamins, minerals, and more, all combined with a woman's body and mind. So if you're trying to conceive, you want to better manage your PCOS, or you're simply looking to feel your best, Noelle streamlines your self-care in one easy step. Find out more at noelle.com. That's spelled K-N-O-W-E-L-L.com and get 10% off with the code IAFNOEL. That's I-A-F-K-N-O-W-E-L-L. Thanks, Noel. Today's sponsor is Veracity. Whether it's acne, pigmentation, or dry skin, many of us understand the frustrating and defeating feeling of trying to combat persistent skin issues. And no matter what toners, serums, or creams you try, you can't find a solid and long-term solution to healthy skin. 
95% of your skin's condition is driven by hormones. Did you guys know that? I did not. The good news? Now there's something you can do about it. Meet Veracity, a totally new type of skincare brand that's revolutionizing the way we approach caring for our skin. Instead of treating symptoms, Veracity uses a whole health approach to address the root of skin health, hormones. Through a simple at-home saliva test, Veracity tests the six biomarkers that directly impact your skin's condition the most. And within two weeks, you'll receive your physician-reviewed results and skincare recommendations, along with actionable steps to take in your diet and lifestyle to begin treating your skin and balancing your hormones. Developed by a team of medical advisors and a PhD in hormonal health, Veracity skincare products are clinically effective, scientifically verified clean, and safe for all of life's moments, including TTC, pregnancy, and breastfeeding. They contain advanced ingredients, such as blue light and UV-protecting garland lily extract, just to name a few. This attention to detail was born out of founder Ali Egan's search for answers throughout her own skin journey and health journey. After years of suffering dry patches on her skin, it wasn't until she went in for fertility testing that she discovered she had hypothyroidism and that the condition was the direct cause of her skin issue and a big factor in her infertility. Right now, Veracity is offering all of you guys 20% off their amazing products. I'm obsessed and I'm going to be taking advantage of that discount as well. So use code infertileaf 20 at veracityselfcare.com. You can say hello to great skin and goodbye to trial and error. Again, that's infertileaf 20 for 20% off at veracityselfcare.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Family, the first and only 50-state fertility telehealth company with at-home hormone labs, one-to-one online clinical visits, and treatment and medications sent straight to your front door. With upwards of 60% of infertility caused by hormonal imbalances, male factor, and the always frustrating unexplained infertility, Family is helping women and couples find real answers, rebalance their bodies, and get pregnant before resorting to more costly, invasive, and emotionally draining procedures. Founded in 2020, following one woman's own rocky journey to conceive, Family's online solution delivers the care you deserve with the convenience and comfort of your own home. The truth is, your fertility deserves personalized care, and in a few simple steps, you are on your way to a treatment as unique as your own journey. So if you've been trying to conceive without a pregnancy for months or years, if you're considering IVF or have had IVF without success, if you've been diagnosed with unexplained infertility or PCOS, or if you've had recurrent miscarriages, family is right for you. Get started with family today by heading over to family.com. That's F-A-M-L-E-E.com slash get the kit and use code infertileaf 25 at checkout for 25% off. Thanks family. All right, guys. So welcome to the season four premiere. I'm so excited today to share my conversation with Amanda Knox, who, as many of you know, is the American who spent almost four years in an Italian prison following her wrongful conviction of the 2007 murder of Meredith Kircher, a fellow exchange student with whom she shared an apartment. In 2015, Knox was definitively acquitted And today she is a mother to her baby girl, Eureka. She's a journalist and she's a podcast host of her own show called Labyrinths. And just so you know, this is not a podcast about the aforementioned. We're here today to talk about Amanda's own fertility journey and her devastating miscarriage 
and becoming a mother after loss, and also the advocacy work that she's doing today for wrongfully convicted women everywhere. So it's an interesting and what I think is an important conversation, shedding light on a side of infertility that I have not yet covered in these past 150 episodes before this. So we're going to talk extensively about the criminal justice system and her thoughts on that and how it affects family building. Uh, We're going to talk about Amanda's own four years in prison and how she was terrified that she would never become a mother, even contemplating suicide. We're going to talk about finding love after being what she says vilified in the press and her own miscarriage, the anxiety of pregnancy after loss, and how during her third trimester, she was convinced that she was going to die. And like I said, we're going to talk about her advocacy work for wrongfully convicted women everywhere and how we can all help. So we're talking about a lot today. I'm really proud of this episode. I really enjoyed talking to her and I hope you guys will give it a full listen with open ears and open hearts. So thank you, Amanda, for a very fascinating conversation. And without further ado, this is Amanda Knox's infertility story. Amanda, it's so great to talk to you. I've been really, really looking forward to this and having this conversation with you. Oh, thank you. I, I really appreciate your podcast and and how you're covering a topic that does not usually get discussed. And I'm excited to talk about all the different ways that I've been thinking about fertility and infertility. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even since before my my own personal journey. So right. So I want to start with your advocacy work, which you're doing a lot of these days and the essay that you wrote recently for Oprah's website, right? Uh, Yes. Mm -hmm. It was called Sentenced to Infertility, which I thought was such an interesting perspective, something I haven't talked about in my, you know, 150 some episodes so far. So I think it's so cool what you're doing. I'm going to read the subhead and then I want to hear about why you wanted to write this essay. So it's called Sentenced to Infertility. The subhead is When Amanda Knox was wrongfully convicted of killing her roommate on an Italian court by an Italian court, she faced not just the loss of her freedom, but also that of her childbearing years. Here she shed light on this punishment that outlasts a sentence and uniquely affects women. So, so riveting. Tell me about why you wanted to write this. And also it's such a great essay and so well-written. So can you give us the gist for someone who hasn't read it? What do you, what is it about? Absolutely. So it is, uh, I talk about how, you know, recently on my podcast Labyrinths, I had a whole, you know, series talking about infertility and how I had my own infertility crisis. I had a miscarriage, la, 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 la. And it's, it's a, obviously an extremely existential experience to think like, oh, I'm going to be a mom. I'm going to have a family. And to suddenly like have that certainty that you've always felt like there is sort of like visceral body, least like spiritual certainty come into question. And I had to admit that like, this wasn't the first time that I had felt that kind of existential crisis. Um, the first time I had felt that was when I was sentenced to 26 years in prison for a crime that I didn't commit. Mm-hmm. and. What I lost was not just time and youth and human potential, but also there was the prospect of a family that was very, very real and 
and lost for me in that moment. And it is lost for any woman who is sentenced to lose her childbearing years to prison. And I wanted to point out that there is a unique cost that mm-hmm. the criminal justice system doesn't really take into consideration uh, when we are sentencing women for crimes and that we should potentially be thinking about that because I, I often talk about in my own advocacy work when I mm-hmm. write, do journalism or um, advocate for certain criminal justice reforms, one of the sort of big um, overriding issues with the criminal justice system it, it is that it was built by men for men. Mm. And even just the way that the prison system works, it's all built to control the impulses of men. And women experience, you know, imprisonment and accusations and trials and sentences in a unique way compared to men. Um, And I think that, you know, when I was in prison, I met all kinds of women. And there were there were some women who were in prison with their very young children. We had a a whole separate ward um, in the prison for those women who were either pregnant or had very, very young children under two years old. And they were entitled to be like to serve their sentence with those children. Mm -hmm. But as soon as those children turned two years old, they were taken away from them. And the vast majority of the times that I've seen women try to commit suicide in prison was at that very particular moment. And like the, just the, the many ways that I've seen women suffer either because they have children on the outside who they no longer can take care of because of their sentence or the women who are thinking like myself, who are thinking, oh my God, I'm never going to get to have children because Mm -hmm. I've been sentenced to a I to many, many years in prison for, for a crime, whether mm-hmm. they did it or not. Like, I think that when we think about sentencing reform and what it means and, and what is the purpose of prison and whether or not it's rehabilitating people, I think one of those big costs that we don't often think about is how prison and sentencing impacts families. I've ne- I've, I feel like I've never heard it really discussed before until I read this essay by you. So thank you for doing that and for shedding some light on this. So I want to talk a little bit more about your experience. You said that from a young age, you'd always imagined yourself as a mother, but then at one point, you know, you were sentenced and you knew that you'd be behind bars for 26 years. You had to adjust to this, what you call this new and sad reality. So, you know, you would have been released at the age of 46, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about that and what was going through your mind when it it hit you that that was going to be your new and sad reality. Oh God. I mean, it's, it was the moment that I was convicted and I was sentenced. Um, I was not prepared for it because mm-hmm. I had been experiencing this whole investigation and two years of imprisonment and a whole year on trial from the perspective of this is all just a really big misunderstanding mm-hmm. and the adults in the room are going to figure it out. And I'm going to get to go home. And my mom was very patiently alongside me the entire way telling me we are, we are in a tunnel, 
but there is a light at the end of this tunnel mm-hmm. and you're going to be found innocent. The truth is going to be vindicated and you're, we're going to take you home. And indeed my entire family showed up that day for that mm-hmm. verdict. Like my littlest sisters who were, you know, preteens at the time and not even old enough to go into the courtroom were there waiting for waiting to take me home. They had a plane ticket, everything. Mm-hmm. And then I was convicted. And then everything that I thought about that I could trust in the world, that the truth mattered, that the the criminal justice system was this like a scientific laboratory where all this like extraneous information is boiled down to truth beyond a reasonable doubt, like all of that disappeared. And I realized that the truth didn't matter and that the story mattered and that the villain that the prosecution had created mattered to people. And I didn't. And so I went back into my prison cell and I had to completely reframe this experience that was happening to me. Like I had been processing this whole thing thinking this is a temporary thing. This is not my life. This is, I am sort of in this limbo space that's not really my life. And I'm going to get my life back as soon as the world figures it out. And I, I had this like deep, deep, visceral, sad realization that, oh no, this is my life. And my life is not what I thought it was going to be. And not only am I not going to, you know, go home. I'm not going to have a career. I'm not going to have a family. Like the loneliness of that. Like already I was sort of experiencing the horrible reality of prison that no matter how much your family and friends want to be there for you, at the end of the day, you are the one who is walking back into that prison cell alone. And you are living a very, very different life than the ones that your loved ones are living. Mm -hmm. And so inevitably, your paths are going down, are, are just so, are, are diverging and your, your lives are so different and you become unable to fully comprehend the experience of the other because your, your lives are so different in these fundamental ways. Mm-hmm. And I was, so I had, I was already experiencing loneliness and then the loneliness of realizing that I was not going to share my life with with a man I loved and I was not going to have children deeply, deeply impacted me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I tried to think like, okay, if that's not true anymore, how do I make my life worth living? Right. And as you said, like motherhood had been stolen from you. So tell me about, did you like these women that you mentioned before, did you contemplate ending your life at any point? Or was it like, how did you get through that? Cause you, there's a grief involved too, as people who've had a loss or infertility know when you can't have what you want so badly or when something's lost or taken from you, you, you grieve that loss. So tell yeah, me it's about a loss that. of self, right? Like you have, there's a version of yourself that you, that you've always been striving for. And that seems like such an important part of yourself to bring to fruition. And then to realize that that doesn't get to exist is just a shocking existential crisis. You have to reframe your own relationship with yourself mm-hmm. and with your own life. And yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm pretty, I don't know how usual this is. I absolutely every day, like started out every day trying to think of how, what, what singular humble things could I do that would make my life worth living that day and to feel like my life hadn't been stolen that mm-hmm. day. Yeah. And 
And I often came up with solutions, but I also always found a small comfort in the idea that there is another possibility. There is the idea that if I decided one day that this life wasn't worth living, I wasn't as trapped as I truly felt. There was a way out technically. And I imagined how I would accomplish that escape. I imagined the different ways and it wasn't hard because a lot of women in the prison were attempting suicide at various times. Um, None of the women that I lived with succeeded, but there were men um, on the male side of the prison who did succeed at committing suicide while I was in prison. And so I knew the various ways and I had, and like in my darkest moments, I imagined how I would execute those various ways. But in the end, I'm happy to say that like, even in the midst of all of that, I I retained a sense of stubbornness. Like Hmm. they've taken stuff from me and I, and yet I still have, I still retain some really important fundamental things that are important to me. I retain ownership over my own mind, over my, the mental processing of this experience is happening Mm -hmm. to me. I still have my friends. I still have my family, even if I'm on this different path from them, I still have that connection to the Mm -hmm. outside world. And this, this really small, limited suffering place was not the only thing in my life. And I can't say that that was necessarily the case for a lot of the other women that I was in prison with, because Mm -hmm. the vast majority of them were victims of crime before they ever um, committed crimes themselves. They Mm -hmm. were women who were deeply poor, who had um, lived in situations of abuse and neglect and and addiction. And so they were facing really, really difficult problems. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the end, they were still people and they were still they they were still connected to people. And one of the like one of the people who I became close friends with was a young woman who was a petty thief. She had just always been a pickpocket, but she was and it, it was just part of like the culture that she grew up in. She um and she had a very, very young son who was only one years old when she was arrested. She had her son when she was 17 years old mm-hmm. and she was arrested when she was 18 and finally sentenced for this sort of backlog of crimes that she had committed, this this petty theft that she had committed since she was a teenager. And she was sentenced to 10 years in prison. And she had no idea that that's how it, it worked, that they were just sort of keeping a tally of all the times that she had been caught, you know joyriding on a Vespa or pickpocketing, you know, someone on the bus and that the, her whole experience of motherhood for that, her, for her young son was gone, just gone. Like, so it's, it's not just the person who committed the crime who gets impacted. It's everyone else who loves and depends on that person. Right. So as everyone knows, you were acquitted after four years in prison and eight years on trial, right? Mm-hmm. Tell me about the people that you met through the Innocence Network conference and you know these other wrongfully accused people who became to be your friends, who share these stories you went on to share. Absolutely. Um, so the first time I ever encountered any other wrongfully convicted person I was totally unprepared for it. It was while I was still on trial. Um, In fact, I had very recently been reconvicted in absentia. And so I was facing potential extradition. 
I was having to like, while I was in the middle of going to classes at college, I was also meeting with lawyers and talking about turning myself into the local cops, hoping that, that I could serve a sentence in the United States, as opposed to being shipped all the way back to Italy to serve a sentence. Like it was a, a space of deep, deep insecurity, uncertainty, limbo, feeling like I couldn't really put roots down because they would just, everything would just be torn. I would be torn away from everything again. And I felt deeply isolated and alone. Like nobody really understood my experience. I was under constant media scrutiny. And the last thing that I wanted to do in that moment was meet a bunch of strange people who knew who I was. Right. (laughs) Like, Like that was the last thing I wanted to do. But my mom who had been contacted by um, a Innocence Project director from Idaho, was convinced and convinced me that we needed to go to this conference where all of these wrongfully convicted people get together every year. And so I went and I walked into this like hotel ballroom and I was immediately approached and embraced by these two men who they didn't even say who they were. They just said, you don't have to explain a thing, little sister. We know. And I later learned that these two men had both spent over 10 years in prison each for crimes that they didn't commit. And that they were, they like knew exactly what I needed to hear in that moment, which is that I was not in a place of judgment. I was in a place of love and understanding and that these men understood what I went through. Mm. And in the, in since then, that was in 2014, I believe. Since then, I've met tons of wrongfully convicted people who have lost so much time, especially here in the United States where sentences are so long. We just sentence people to tremendously long sentences. And it we have a very difficult process for appealing convictions. So there's we don't have automatic appeals like we do in Italy, say, which is why I ended up spending four years in prison instead of 10, 14, 40, like you see here in wrongful convictions cases. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting because women are not the majority, right? Like this, again, the criminal justice system is a system built by and for men. And men tend to be also more, more the victims of the criminal justice system going wrong. Women account for about one in 10. Mm-hmm. But the really, really the saddest, saddest cases, uh, wrongful convictions cases, tend to be those of women. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you why. Women, unlike men, um, so men tend to get convicted because an actual crime occurred and the police were wrong. They targeted the wrong person. They didn't, you know, do a good job with the investigation. They got bad eyewitnesses, whatever, whatever it is. Like they, there's an actual crime that happened and they got the wrong guy. And then DNA comes back later and they're able to prove the innocence of this person and prove that it was done by someone else. Mm-hmm. In women's cases, more often than not, in two thirds of um, cases where women were wrongly convicted, it was because no crime ever actually occurred. Hmm. And instead, what happened is someone in their care died and they were blamed for that death, even though it was, say, um, the suicide of a husband or the accidental death of a child. Hmm. And so what you see in these cases is very often women who are mothers who their young children dies in some tragic, unexpected way. And then not only are they grappling with that loss, they are then blamed 
and accused and put on trial and imprisoned for a a crime that never even happened. Mm -hmm. And I have seen countless women who are who not only then lose the childbearing years of their life in order to like, you know, recuperate from that terrible loss, but also they're never really offered the opportunity to grieve their child. Mm. And these are like the, like I have seen, like I've seen incredibly uh, strong people who have like really gotten over it. And then I've seen other people, like especially women who are deeply, deeply broken by that experience because the self-blame that comes Mm -hmm. with, you know, already being a caregiver and someone that you love and are caring for dies unexpectedly, like already you're Mm self-blaming. But then on top of it, the world is treating you like this horrific monster and you're you're having to defend yourself. And meanwhile, you're not there to grieve the loss of your child. Like it's, it's horrible. It's crushing on so many levels. Yeah. Well, you also so eloquently wrote when a woman is convicted and given a long sentence, she's effectively sentenced, not just to time, but to infertility. So, you know, can you talk about that a little bit more? And I'd love to hear about Stephanie Loudon, your friend that you Mm. also wrote about. Can, you know, there's specific people that you've befriended who have gone through this exact experience. So um, I think it's helpful to share a couple of those stories if you don't mind. Absolutely. Yeah. So not just Stephanie. Um, I I specifically mentioned Stephanie because she was willing to put her name to it. Mm -hmm. Um, But like I've met very numerous women who were wrongly convicted, spent, you know, 10, 15, 20 years in prison, have always wanted to be mothers. So basically just like me, who came out at the very brink of going into menopause. And they are like the, just the, the sort of mind screwery that happens when you get out of prison and you're trying to rehabilitate into society and be just a normal person in society is already a ton of pressure. It takes so much time to process how to be a person again in the real world after you've been in prison for so long. But then there's that pressure of like, oh my God, I might still have a chance to be a mother, Mm -hmm. but what is it going to take? And do I have the, do I have health insurance? Do I have money? Do I have a partner? Like all of these things are like, you are at the precipice of losing that chance. And you're so desperate that you like, you'll go through all of the infertility treatments that you possibly can. You have no money. You've come out of this situation destitute. Like you are just, you're desperately clawing at the chance. Mm -hmm. And some women miraculously succeed and do go on to have children. And I know some very, very sad um, stories of women who it, they just didn't get out fast enough and they lost that chance. And it remains the, the biggest, most damaging thing that has happened to them as a result of their wrongful conviction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's pivot back to your own story. Can we talk about how you met your husband? Sure. Yeah. I, we have a great meet cute story. Cause that's again, like one of the, one of the, really, really difficult realities of wrongful conviction is that people go back into the world. Sure. Like they're legally exonerated and technically vindicated, but does that mean that the stigma of the accusation goes away right? and that you can meet a person in the real world who's going to treat you like a normal person and, right. and, you know, want to have kids with you. <laughs> like, right. There's, right. There's no guarantee of that. And for me, like I came out of prison thinking that I could never, ever, ever meet a new person again. 
that didn't like, know who you were, right? Exactly. Who didn't know who I am and who didn't already have some weird idea about me because they had heard about this idea of the villain Amanda Knox in the media. And even if they had good thoughts about me, like, are they going to be wrapped up in in, in the image or mm-hmm. the story and not just little old me who had this bad thing happen to them? And right. I didn't like the idea that someone would love me because of the worst experience of my life and not just love me like that was something yeah. that I was deeply, you know, uh, scared of. And, sure. and, and that's and, a unique experience that only you and a handful of other people have been through, right? Like maybe like a Monica Lewinsky, for example, have you, right. have you ever talked to her or anybody else who's been in this situation where you've become this tabloid like sensation or just everybody in the world is talking about you? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm, um, that's kind of my shtick, right? Like I, I, I always try to connect with people who end up, especially women who end up becoming vilified and cartoon cutouts for our sort of, uh, schadenfreude entertainment content. Like, and yeah, I've absolutely spoken with Monica Lewinsky. Mm -hmm. Um, I consider her a friend, Mm -hmm. um, and she's been through hell and notably like she, you know, doesn't have a family, doesn't have children yet because it's been that, that story about her is something that distances her from the rest of society in in a meaningful way. But the way that I happened to meet my husband and become a very, I consider myself, honestly, a very lucky person, (laughs) to be honest. Really? Interesting. Um, Yeah. Well, if you think about Mm -hmm. it, like, I didn't get murdered, Mm -hmm. first of all. Like, the only reason I wasn't murdered the same day that Meredith was murdered was because I had met a nice boy five days earlier. Mm -hmm. Raffaele Selecito, like I didn't know him from a long time. Like right. I met him five days earlier yeah. and was hanging out with him. And that's why I wasn't home that night. And that's why I wasn't murdered. Mm-hmm. So wow. I consider myself an incredibly lucky person. And it's it's mind boggling to me that despite this incredible stigma that I live with to this day, I stumbled upon a person who instead of like paying attention to true crime and being, mm-hmm. you know, on the up and up with all of these crazy stories that are out there in the world, he's a poetry guy. Mm-hmm. Like all those years that I was in prison, my my now husband was traveling around at artist colonies and writing poetry. <laughs> like true crime was not his thing. He's, you know, he went to he went to college for philosophy and poetry. Mm-hmm. And when I met him, it was also a kind of fluke. Like at the time I was doing arts correspondence for a local newspaper Mm -hmm. and I read an advanced copy of his first published novel and I I wrote a review, but I had no intention of ever meeting him. I didn't meet people (laughs) like that wasn't what I did at the time, but I had recently been fully exonerated Mm -hmm. like a month prior. And I submitted this review And then the very next day I walked out of my apartment building and I saw this poster up in like the diner window across the street. And it was for a book reading for this exact book that I had just read. Oh my God. And and greatly enjoyed. And so I was thinking, oh, that's, that's a coincidence. Like, and this book reading is happening tonight at my local bookstore. Huh? Hmm. Well, that's interesting. I mean, maybe I can just sort of sneak in there and, and, and 
take a look and see what it's all all about. I don't go to public things, mm-hmm. but maybe it's okay. It's a book reading. It can't be like that big of a deal. Right. So I, I show up at this book reading and I try to be invisible. And of course I'm not. People are whispering like, man, Knox is here, man, Knox is here. Yeah. But my now husband was uh, totally wrapped up in having to be the center of the room and read read from his own book. And he was just like, Oh, hi, nice to meet you. Like shaking my hand, just like any other person as I'm getting my copy of his book signed or whatever. And I asked him for an interview for the paper because I interview local, you know, artists or whatever. And he says, sure, sure. So I think like a day or two later, he invited me to his apartment and I interviewed him and his friend who they wrote the book together and just had a great time. Like mm-hmm. it was, you know, just talking about him, talking about literature. And then that devolved into drinking scotch and watching Star Trek. And <laughs> as one all, does, as one does. Yeah. And at the end of it all, he just kind of shook my hand and was like, hey, we should be friends. This was super fun. Yeah. And had I had he heard of you. Do you know? Or like, so I mean, obviously he, he hadn't delved into all the stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So being from Seattle, he had heard my name. Okay. So he knew that I was a person that people knew about, <laughs> but he didn't. That was basically the extent of it. Right. And okay. he didn't really care. Like, yeah, that was he's he's friends with lots of famous people. Like sure. he was the he was the um assistant. He was the personal assistant of Mary Carr who is oh, this wow. incredible, you know, author and memoirist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was her personal assistant for many yeah. years. And so like for him, I was not a big deal at yeah. all, which was fantastic for me. That must and have so, been such a relief. It was a huge relief yeah. because here was someone who had no interest whatsoever in why people talked about me. His only right. interest was that we connected over Star Trek and then we continued to connect over literature and, and things like that. Right. So we formed this very like organic, real friendship. And then months later, uh, when, you know, our various, you know, interpersonal relationships were in a very different place, he started mm-hmm. dating around and I was one of the women that he started dating. Mm. And um, and I like to like what's fun about that is I certainly was not dating around. That was not something that I did. Um, right. But his roommate, who was a big fan of like not a big fan because I am in the news, but a big fan because I like to watch cartoons, um, was like, pick a man to pick a man. <laughs> ah! <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. And then what happened? How long before you guys got serious and started talking about like family and stuff? Uh, that's funny. So he, his sort of embarrassing thing is that um, we really like started dating like, you know, just the two of us in like January, February of 2016. And already by Valentine's Day, he was like, oh, my God, I love this person. And I he's like I- so embarrassed of how like it was. He was like I was at the time. I was actually hosting a Valentine's Day, you know, book event at the local bookstore that I was working at. Mm -hmm. Um, I was organizing like, oh, you know, getting people to come in after hours and look at all the sort of love poetry books that we had um, at the bookstore. And he was helping me set up for that. And he just like had this sort of realization the day before Valentine's Day as we're setting up this like love themed party at this bookstore. He was like, oh, my God. I love this person. I have to tell her quick before it's Valentine's Day and it's so stupid. <laughs> um, so that was when he dropped the love bomb. And um, I, I, you know, 
I already was looking at this person thinking like, wow, I really connect with this person and he really sees me like we had gotten to know each other in a sort of platonic friendship kind of Mm -hmm. way over the over the year, like nine months prior to that. And I was just like, wow, this is a really special person. And, you know, six months after we started dating, we moved in together Mm -hmm. and we already had this sense of like, okay, we're a thing. We're going to do this whole life thing together. And I was very straightforward with him from the beginning that I've always, always, always wanted kids. Uh huh. Um, that's just always been a part of who I am, what I've wanted. And he was great about it. Like he's um, in the past, he's always been like open to the idea of having kids or not having kids just because the various women in his life have had different feelings about that. Mm-hmm. But he's always been like, 100% for it with me and he's such a great dad now. He's so natural yeah, and just so sweet and I can't wait. Like already I have like these ideas of like Eureka's memories of him and how they're developing and how he has like a scratchy beard and when he kisses oh. her she's feeling his scratchy beard and that's going to be something that like deeply resonates with her um, in the long run of her life. And right now he's literally holding her outside of the vocal booth. That's right. Just like, you know, working on the audio engineering, another one of our podcasts. Oh, <laughs> thank you for holding it down. <laughs> yeah. So tell me, so Eureka is how old now? Eureka turned six months yesterday. Okay. But before that, you did have a loss. Can we talk about that, please? If you don't mind a little bit, you know, you wrote a little bit about how, you walked into, you know, your eight week ultrasound and it didn't go as planned. So if you don't mind, let's, let's talk about that experience, please. Absolutely. So Chris and I got married at the end of February, 2020. So right before the pandemic really hit here in Seattle Mm -hmm. and going like coming out of our wedding, we were like, okay, let's, take out the IUD. Let's, let's do this. We were ready for a family. And I went into that situation feeling so certain that everything would work out because like of all the things in the world that I just sort of knew about myself, I knew that I was going to be a mom somehow, like even in like the darkest moments of prison when I was thinking, oh my God, I've lost this. Like a deep part of myself was still like, but that can't be true. Like I've, I just, I just know that I'm going to be a mom. Like it's so real to me. Right. And so I went in like to my appointment to get my IUD out giddy. And I came out of it just like giggling like a schoolgirl, like, oh, it's happening. It's happening. And and then, of course, like the second I take it out, like we get pregnant immediately. And of course, because it's all meant to be. And right and then to walk into that eight week ultrasound. So looking forward to seeing for the first time, like this real person that's mm-hmm. happening inside of me mm-hmm. and then to have the nurse. Pause. And be quiet and then say, I have to get the doctor. Mm -hmm. And then that that disbelief and dread to feel that settle on me. Yeah. And and also to realize, like, I had what they call a missed miscarriage, which I'm sure you've heard all about. Yeah. But like 
the the fetus was dead. Um, it wasn't developing, but my body hadn't figured it out yet. Mm-hmm. And there was that feeling of just like, how, how, how could like, I not know that something that is a part of me is dead and gone. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, they recommended this non-invasive procedure in order to kickstart the miscarriage process so that we could Mm -hmm. um, continue our fertility journey. And I also went into that um, in a sort of cavalier trance-like way where I was like, okay, this, I just, you know, have to get through this bad thing, but Mm -hmm. it was way more visceral than I expected. And I kept like, as I was losing this pregnancy, like, you know, in, I'm talking like in a toilet, in, um, in, you know, the pads in my underwear. Right. I kept feeling like, oh my, like, where is my baby in all of this? Like, yeah. where, did, where did it go? Like, where did it, where did the love go? Mm. Like where, like it, it felt like my love was still there, but it, where was the baby? Mm-hmm. And, and that it was, it just hurt way more than I was anticipating. Mm-hmm. And it and it gave me this feeling of like sudden dread and existential uncertainty that I was not expecting to feel about pregnancy and about motherhood. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it's a, a mixed blessing because, you know, one of the things that I talk about with trauma is that, you know, one of the big things that it leaves you with is this deep existential dread that Mm. like everything that you love could be taken from you because it has. And, but the truth of the matter is like, you can, you can live with a sense of deep instability and uncertainty and, and pessimism as a result of that. But the real, real truth is that that was always true all along. Mm. Like at any moment in our lives, whether we realize it or not, we can lose everything. Wow. And wow. Are, I just got the chills. Right? Like, yeah. and there are no guarantees. Yeah. And so how grateful can you be that you have anything? Wow. Like, that's the sort of deep, like, emotional resonance that I feel is that, yes, like, there, there's so much uncertainty and no guarantees in the world and everything you love can be lost at any moment. So how special is it that it's here with you now? Right. So almost instead of feeling pessimistic, feeling grateful that you have anything. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I came out of that experience um, of losing that pregnancy and, you know, definitely grieving and feeling the loss, but also feeling so grateful to have a partner who is going through it with me. Mm -hmm. So grateful to even to have had the chance to feel that person mm-hmm. inside of me, even for that brief time. Yeah. And, yeah. and to not be broken by it. Like I had gone through something that was yeah. really deeply impactful to me in a, in deeply traumatizing in a very real way. And I, and that didn't destroy motherhood for me. I was still determined and I was all the more grateful 
for the next opportunity that was going to come. It was not something that I was going to take for granted. Absolutely. I have to say, I can't believe, Amanda, the strength that you have in all of these really tough situations. So I'm really, really sorry for your loss. And thank you so much for, for talking about that. You know, you mentioned your husband and he does seem like such a wonderful partner. Did this have any effect on your relationship? You know, I've been very candid about when I was going through infertility, you know, my husband and I had a lot of issues and it almost broke us. We're still together, but it was hard. So mm-hmm. did this, you know, and people grieve differently too. So did, did the miscarriage have an effect on you guys? You know, I think that one of the saving graces of having experienced um, a really big existential trauma in the past before this Mm -hmm. um, is that I came into this relationship knowing that I carried a lot of emotional baggage that needed to be dealt with between Mm. us. And so from the get-go, my husband and I have been very, very good communicators. Mm. And when we have not been on the same page about something emotionally or intellectually, we've always been very, very good about talking about it and not looking away from it, like looking directly at whatever thing becomes a reason for distance to come between us. And when it came to this loss, I think my husband was really, really well equipped to, even though it was very surprising and not what he expected either, um, he was really good at recognizing that the way that it impacted me did not have to be the same as the way that it impacted him. and he could still validate my feelings and be responsive to my needs Mm -hmm. in such a way that, that, you know, he didn't even have to understand what it felt like for me. Like it just, as I don't know, I don't know if this is similar to your experience, but for me as the woman and as the carrier, and as Mm -hmm. it's a part of my body, like I just felt it way more than he did. Yeah. It was way more real for me than it was for him. Same. And, and yet he was like, but you're, even though it's more real for you than it is for me, like that doesn't mean that I have to assume that it should be as real for you as it is for me. Like he was like, it is as real for you as it is like Mm -hmm. that is real. And he was able to respond to me appropriately. Right. Um, Yeah. So I love that you said that, you know, you were felt lucky or grateful to have a chance to try again. So when did you guys start to try and what happened when you started to try again? Yeah. So, um, we, after the, um, after the miscarriage, we, my doctor had recommended that I wait at least a month or two until we started trying again. Mm -hmm. And a part of me was like, I don't want to wait at all because I just lost this chance. And I thought that I was going to be, you know, three months along already in this journey and it's, and it's not there. So I feel like I've just lost like that feeling of lost time also Mm -hmm. is deeply resonant with the prison experience where you like, you just want to start back up again because you're already like behind in your own experience. You have, you've tricked your brain into thinking that I should already be a mom this much and I'm not. Right. (laughs) Right. Cause friends around you who, you know, had, didn't, didn't go to prison, right. We're like li- having their lives on track, quote mm-hmm. unquote, right. Like that must've been 
hard to see people progressing along as, as you thought you might have. Right. Right. And accepting that your life is not going to go at the pace of someone else's life. And your, your motherhood journey is not going to go at the same pace as someone else's motherhood journey. I love that you say that because I think so many people can resonate with that. Yeah. Yeah. So eventually we did start trying. I think after um, we we waited a month or two and and then we had the disconcerting experience of, well, I got pregnant immediately the first time. Why aren't I getting pregnant immediately this time? Mm -hmm. Is there something wrong with me? Was that first time a fluke? And now I don't know if I actually can conceive. And is it because like I started having these totally irrational thoughts like, am was prison so like, did prison impact me in a way that I didn't even realize? Am I like traumatized? into infertility and is mm. that why I'm not able to have babies like you you, wow. you come up with every explanation possible yeah and because there is no reason why it's not working immediately and gratefully it didn't ultimately take a year mm-hmm. to get pregnant and I didn't have to you know go through infertility treatments and mm-hmm. all of these insane measures that so many people end up having to go through. Mm -hmm. Um, I did get pregnant and I did have a successful pregnancy. Yeah. But I, there was, there was that moment where I was just like, I, everything is uncertain and I don't know what's going to happen. And am I ever going to be a mom? Yeah, definitely. And did you have the anxiety that often comes along with pregnancy after loss, you know, where you're just, you know, waiting for the other shoe to drop? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I did a whole, um, see like mini series right. covering my pregnancy in labyrinths and yes, everyone go listen to labyrinth. <laughs> so <laughs> good. You. Yeah. Um, even just like the infertility series though, because I connected mm-hmm. with so many women who had been, who had gone through hell and, and yeah. come back again to become mothers. But, um, my pregnancy journey was surprising to me yet again, because after a trauma, after you feel like everything that you thought motherhood was going to be like easy, natural, beautiful, exciting, empowering, like when it doesn't feel that way or when it wasn't that way, the first time you tried, then you feel you sort of distrust your own body as you're going into this very, very important thing that your body needs to do. And you need to trust your body. I, I was very uncertain and the first trimester, I really struggled with it emotionally. Second trimester was better. And then third trimester, I was convinced I was going to die. Like no one, no one could talk me out of it. And I knew like, everyone was like, you know, that that's not rational. You know, that the likelihood of that happening. And it's like, well, you know what the likelihood of being wrongly convicted is right? like I could, I absolutely could die. And it just seems so impossible. Like this thing inside me is so big mm-hmm. and I have no idea how, like I have, like I, I theoretically can understand and I can watch all the YouTube right. videos where they show your pelvis opening up. Like I can see all of that information and right. still, and understand it intellectually. Right. And yet I can't feel it's, I can't feel like it's possible. And I feel like I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. And that's what I spent mu- much of my third trimester feeling like. Wow. So when she was finally born and everything went well, and here she is today. So well. <laughs> I mean, how, yeah. how, how does that feel? You know, flashing back to when you were 
imprisoned and thinking I might never get to be a mom. And now that now you are. Yeah. Oh my God. I, I love every moment of it. And I'm really conscious about not taking it for granted. Yeah. I think that there's a tendency to sort of like when you're feeding the baby to like be holding your phone and, mm-hmm. and watch, you know, t- scrolling through Twitter. And I really, really avoid doing that because I'm just so aware of how if, if one thing had gone differently, this little person in my arms wouldn't exist. Yeah. And I love her so much and I want her to have a way better life than I've had. And I want her to be able to not live in, in my shadow or the shadow of the worst thing that ever happened to me. And I, I just, I, I just want to be there for her the way my mom was there for me. And I'm just so grateful. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Well, before we wrap, I would love to talk about, you know, the sentencing project, which is something that's near and dear to your heart and what you're doing, working with all of them. You know, you, you mentioned that when the criminal justice, like when criminal justice is a cause of somebody's infertility, there is something that we can do about it as humans. So can you tell people who might be listening, how can we get involved? How can we help with the sentencing project? What is it? All that good stuff, please. That's a, thank you so much for asking. So, of course. um, you know, it's, it's interesting as much as the criminal justice system was made by and for men, so many of the people who are working on criminal justice reform are women. <laughs> and I like it's it's so interesting to me that there are all of these incredible org- organizations like Families Against Mandatory Minimums or yeah. the Sentencing Project that are by and large made by women and are he- directed by women and are working to humanize the sentencing issue to take a a re-examination of what imprisonment is for, um, whether or not it's rehabilitative, and to take into consideration the global impact of sentencing on not just the individual, but everyone else who is connected to that individual as Mm -hmm. the, the families that are impacted by sentencing and consider reforms that would allow people to have better access to their families, even if they are serving time for a mistake they made. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, so anyone, I I recommend anyone looking into the sentencing project, looking into the innocence project, just checking it out. And you'd be surprised the ways that anyone can just help out on in any little way. Like, Mm -hmm you know, when I was going through my wrongful conviction, there was a British Airlines employee who recognized that my family was really struggling to pay for just the the airfare to get mm-hmm. to and from Italy to be a supportive person for me. Yeah. And they said, and he said, well, you can have my miles. Wow. Like there are a yeah. million ways that you can support people with resources that like expendable resources that we all have that we can just share to those who are in need. Right. And I think that coming together as a sort of societal family and recognizing who is in need and who has extra is, is really going to make a very big impact on 
the criminal justice system and um, and all these families that are touched by crime, be they yeah. victims or perpetrators. Yeah. Will you continue to fight for this? Like, do you kind of see this as your life's work right now? Like, this is what you were, maybe if you <laughs> went through this for any reason, it was to help people who are coming after you or help reform the system? Yeah. Well, you know, before all of this happened to me, I I never gave the criminal justice system a second thought because mm. I just assumed that bad people go to prison and I don't have to think about it. And mm. I have instead living alongside women who have been incarcerated for crimes that they committed. I realized that it's a way more complicated picture and mm. how everyone is in society is implicated in the bad decisions that that and the the bad decisions that people make because they aren't given opportunities the way that the rest of us do and have and um, and the support that people need. So it really is an issue that I was shocked to find myself mm-hmm. suddenly immersed in. And as a result, I just can't get it out of my head that there are real people and there's real suffering and there's real things that we can do about it. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. And thanks again to Amanda for this really interesting conversation. If you guys want to hear more about what she's doing, definitely check out The Sentencing Project and you can hear her and her husband on their podcast called Labyrinths. I also want to add, as always, if you are going through infertility or you have a loved one who is please check out Fertility Rally. It's the space that we created for anybody under any circumstance who's going through this. And it's a support group. It is a community. It is a sisterhood. It is just my pride and joy. We have over 300 members around the world. We're always looking to expand our family. So if you want to become a member, we open up the first of every month. You can also get on our waiting list at fertilityrally.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at Fertility Rally. So thanks again for listening and I'll talk to you soon.